welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 276, The Bastard Rebel King. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Christian, Jennifer, and Jane for signing up already. The story of Edward is one of contradictions. There's something about his rule that seems complicated and requiring more nuance than many of our earlier rulers. I mean, here we have a king that did what seems to have been impossible. He began his rule holding dominion over Wessex and Kent, and portions of his kingdom were in outright rebellion against him. But at the end of his reign, he's holding all the Anglo-Saxon land south of the Humber. And he has the submission of all the Welsh kingdoms, Jorvik, the rest of Northumbria, as well as Strathclyde and the Scots. There's no way to look at that trajectory and not see an amazingly effective king. But when we look at his rule, it also seems clear that many people around him didn't seem to like him all that much. Even before he became king, back when he was just Edward Affling, his furred abandoned him while on campaign. And his rule has been marked with one political crisis after another, and his kingdom has been constantly at war. Edward was effective, but it also seems like there's just something about him that people didn't like. And the evidence for this isn't just circumstantial. For example, take this story from William of Malmesbury. And to remind you, William is a 12th century historian whose writings are a critical source for us today. While the Chronicle does a lot of the heavy lifting, it's with William's account that we get many of our details. Furthermore, he recounts material that he's read from other books, which is important because many of those books didn't survive to our modern day. So William is one of the only ways we have to know what else was being written. He also pretty clearly drew from common knowledge as it existed during his own time. Now, you wouldn't want to listen to what passes for common knowledge from this era if your question is something like, how should I cure my deadly disease? Or what shape is the planet? But if your questions are on history, common knowledge during William's lifetime becomes really important for your studies. Because even if the facts aren't true in and of themselves, we still get insight into the beliefs and values of the time. So like Bede, William is actually giving us accounts that were probably circulating orally during his own time. Stories that would have been completely lost had he not written them down. And there's one story in particular that William tells us about Edward the Elder. Quote, In the year of our Lord's Nativity, 904, Pope Formosus sent letters into England, by which he denounced excommunication and malediction to King Edward and all his subjects, instead of the benediction which St. Gregory had given the English nation from the seat of St. Peter. Because for seven whole years, the entire district of the Gawissa, that is, of the West Saxons, had been destitute of bishops." End quote. So basically, the Pope was doing the Pope version of a curse. He was telling Edward that no one likes him anymore, that he was condemned, and that nobody should talk to him or his subjects. And the Pope did this because Edward had completely abandoned his job of shepherding the spiritual lives of the West Saxons by failing to appoint any bishops in Wessex for seven years. Now that is catastrophic. And to make matters worse, according to the story, this happened only a handful of years after Edward ascended to the throne, and right on the heels of him defeating that rebellion that was led by his cousin. 
So this malediction and excommunication would have delegitimized Edward's entire rule just as it was getting started. You know, if it actually happened. But it didn't. William, while important, wasn't infallible, and it seems like he got caught up in a myth. Historians universally agree that this malediction story is totally fake. And it's easy to see why. For Moses was long dead in 904, and there's no evidence to support this story from any source. There are no records or references from Rome or any other place that would suggest that these events actually happened. However, this exact same story, pretty much word for word, is also found in a manuscript in Bishop Leofrich's 11th century library at the Cathedral of Exeter. And that tells us two things. The first is that William wasn't making this up for some kind of weird personal reason. And we know that because it was already recorded about 100 years earlier. And the second thing that this tells us is that this was a story that was circulating, at least among some people, about 100 years after Edward's death. So why? Why would there be a fake story about Edward circulating 100 years after he died? And why would it tell about the utter dereliction of his spiritual duties, which got so bad that it got him in trouble with the Pope? Why does that story get made up in the first place? And why was it so common that it got recorded in a manuscript that was kept at the Cathedral of Exeter? It's weird, and I don't really know what to make of it, but it looks like one more tick mark on the list of evidence that Edward might not have been all that popular. There's also another story, and unlike the Pope Formosa story, this one is real. And it actually makes me wonder what kind of person Edward was in his personal life, and how well he was liked by even his own family. I mean, obviously, chances are that Alfled wasn't fond of him, you know, being stuck in a nunnery while Edward shacked up with his new Kentish wife. But we also have the story of Edward's firstborn son, Athelstan. What did he think of him? I mean, think about what Athelstan's life was like in contrast with Edward's. As a child, Edward had been given every opportunity. Edward was basically one of Alfred's great projects. He was raised in court. He was positioned well in society and invited to take part in the politicking that occurred in court, including witnessing charters. He was granted the command of a Ferd so that he could develop his martial abilities. Alfred had worked tirelessly to give his son every advantage. He even spent political capital, and quite possibly real capital, ensuring that his son would inherit Wessex after his death. Now contrast that with Edward's treatment of Athelstan. Based on what we're told, Edward appears to have been, at best, disinterested in Athelstan, and at worst, actively undercutting his son's political position any time it served his interests. And Athelstan endured quite a bit. I mean, we're told that as a very young child, he was Alfred's favorite, and that's something actually I want to return to in a shop talk, because I think that Alfred might have realized late in life that there was something not quite right about Edward. But Athelstan, according to the record, was close to Alfred. And then Alfred died, and almost immediately afterwards, Edward remarried, and young Athelstan was sent off to the north to be raised by his aunt Athelflad in Mercia. Regardless of whether this was designed to avoid a civil war, the fact remains that this would have been pretty traumatic for a young child. And if we're being honest, it would be pretty traumatic for someone of any age. And beyond the emotional impact, this move completely destroyed Athelstan's political position. Rather than being raised in court, now his younger half-brother, Elfweird, would have that honor. That move would telegraph to the power structure of Wessex who was intended to succeed to the throne. And it wasn't Athelstan. 
And while William does claim that Athelstan was designated in Edward's will, we don't actually have a copy of that will, and William was pretty clearly a fan of Athelstan. So there's every possibility that William might have been bolstering Athelstan's reputation posthumously. And the truth is that nothing indicates that Athelstan was designated as Edward's heir. There's no indication in the contemporary records of anything like that. Instead, historians like Maggie Bailey have found plenty of evidence that Elfweird, Edward's second son, was the one who was officially designated as the crown prince. And politics being what they are, and considering where Athelstan was, I find it quite likely that even at a young age, Athelstan knew he was being disinherited. Stuck there in Tamworth, his best case scenario was that maybe he was being groomed to become the Lord of Mercia, but that wasn't really a guarantee, especially since Elfwyn was right there, and Elfwyn was being educated in a way that indicated that she would be ready for rule. In fact, while Elfwyn was out there witnessing charters, like any good designated heir would be, Athelstan was notably absent, perhaps indicating that Elfwyn, not Athelstan, was destined to rule Mercia, regardless of what Wessex might have wanted. So, while his father Edward had been given every possible advantage while he was growing up, Athelstan had a very different upbringing. And beyond the politics of it all, when he got up to Tamworth, I'm guessing that Athelstan was probably a little lonely and scared in his new home. This whole thing seems like it would have been quite hard. But after a while, I'm sure he adjusted. It's amazing what you can adapt to. And there still were plenty of good things around him. His cousin, for example, probably was a natural ally, since both he and Elfwyn were in kind of unusual situations, and they were both living outside their expected roles. And based upon the record, it looks like they were raised together, probably being educated together as well, and that would probably give him some degree of comfort. And it also meant that he probably wasn't spending his time washing floors for his three ugly stepsisters or something like that. And being raised together and actually properly educated was a pretty good deal. It would mean that he and Elfwyn were likely learning both Latin and English literacy. They were learning how to run a great house, what it meant to rule, what responsibilities came with their privileged station, and their education might have even included military matters in those early years. Basically, they were learning how power worked in Tamworth, as well as beyond. They were getting a royal education, despite the fact that Athelstan had been cast out of the halls of power, and Elfwyn was never supposed to be there in the first place. But then Uncle Athelred died, and Auntie Athelflad became the Lady of Mercia. And following that event, life in Mercia, and probably Athelstan's life in general, was dominated by years of war. These were the years where Athelstan probably learned what it meant to command troops. Historians believe that he was likely on campaign right alongside Athelflad, and perhaps alongside Aelfwyn. His life would have been active and engaging. He had a place, he had a role, and he was making his mark on the world. Until his father visited Tamworth, and Auntie Athelflad died. And suddenly everything shifted. Athelstan's childhood home of Tamworth, which was also the center of his burgeoning political influence, was now being occupied by Edward and the West Saxon army. And then Edward and his army went on campaign, and they disinherited his cousin, Elfwyn, and captured her, and dragged her back to Wessex, where Edward probably dumped her in the nunnery at Wilton, since that seems to have been where Edward liked to imprison women he had no need of. And then, 
just for good measure, he gerrymandered Tamworth into obscurity. And as for Athelstan, well, he was alone. Again. And it was all thanks to his dad. Again. Athelstan had been the casualty of Edward's machinations for his entire life. And while Edward seems to have been making all these decisions in response to various crises in the kingdom, the fact remains that Athelstan's situation kept getting worse every time Edward tried to maintain his grip on power. So now, Athelstan was about 26 years old. And he was childless, he was unmarried, and considering the chaos that his father had brought upon his life, I don't find either of those facts surprising. The signs that we're seeing of rebellions and walkouts seem to be evidence that people just didn't like Edward, especially in Mercia. But it's in the story of his son Athelstan that makes me think that this was for a reason, that there was just something cold and callous about the man. It also makes me think that sitting at the top of the list of people who didn't like Edward was probably Athelstan himself. But speaking of Edward, let's get back to him, because he right now is at the zenith of his reign. All of the island of Britain is now either annexed into his kingdom or subject to his rule. He had accomplished virtually everything that he had set out to do. And while King Ragnald of Jorvik was a Dane, he was the kind of Dane that Edward probably could work with. I mean, this guy had set down roots, he was willing to engage in treaties, and he was ruling in a manner which the Anglo-Saxons likely found quite reassuring. Even Ragnald's mints were active producing coins for trade, and coins that were made jointly with Archbishop Hrothweird, which would have telegraphed pretty strongly that this new king wasn't hostile to the Anglo-Saxons or the Christians that he was ruling over. All things being equal, if you had to have a Northman as a neighbor, you could do worse than Ragnald. I mean, it's not like Ragnald was out there raiding and pillaging like his cousin Citric was. Ragnald was a different kind of king. And that probably explains why it seems like there wasn't all that much going on for a bit. The Chronicle doesn't record any wars. It doesn't talk about any surprise attacks or Viking raids. Things get remarkably quiet. And Edward was sitting pretty on his throne. For one whole year. And then King Ragnald of Jorvik died. And his cousin, Citric, yeah, he became King Citric of Jorvik. And Citric was a different kind of king. Where Ragnald showed a willingness to work with Edward, Citric didn't. He refused to acknowledge Edward as his lord, and he ensured that even the coins that were being struck in Jorvik wouldn't include Edward's name. That protectorate that Edward had worked so hard to enact, his great effort at extending his reach over the whole island, one that was so difficult it required him to acknowledge this new kingdom of Jorvik. Well now... It was completely defunct. Jorvik backed out of it. It only lasted for a year. And you might be thinking right now, well, that's perfect, because now Edward has a reason to invade Northumbria, and then he can annex it and form England. But actually, there are two reasons why that wasn't going to work. The first is the fact that Edward was about 50 or 51, and he'd been living a hard half century. I'm guessing that he wasn't all that eager to start another war. And second, cracks were already forming in Edward's kingdom. He didn't have the capacity to fight with King Citric right now. 
There were rumblings of discontent within his kingdom, and the loss of Jorvik was unlikely to help that situation. It made him look weak at a time when his enemies were already looking for an opportunity. He couldn't march. I mean, imagine what would happen if Edward called the Ferd and Mercia refused. What if others followed Mercia? And make no mistake about it, Mercia, as well as North Wales, were probably already showing signs that they weren't going to answer, and that was making him nervous. Why else would he gather his army up that year and march into Gwyneth and build a burr on the mouth of the Cluid? He was making a really big show of power, and he was also consolidating his hold over that territory. And while it is possible that he might have been doing that to protect trade, consolidation is honestly the more likely reason. And it's also a classic Edward move. Building a burr in Wales was decisive. It left no question as to who the real power in the realm was. And it didn't seem to be all that concerned with political fallout. Edward was reminding his allies that he was king. The trouble, though, was that Edward wasn't the only king in town. And King Idwald the Bald of Gwyneth seems to have been getting pretty tired of this nonsense. And he wasn't alone. The people of Chester were fuming. And they'd been fuming for a while. And I wonder if Edward had a sense of what was coming. Because in response to Citric asserting Jorvik independence, Edward did nothing. He just stayed in Winchester. Perhaps he was busy trying to head off whatever trouble was brewing in the northwest corner of his kingdom. Perhaps there was a flurry of activity. But the Chronicle didn't record it. So we can't know for certain. But what we do know is that a rebellion really was brewing. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to give you the story first. And then afterwards, we can talk about what it might mean. So in the early months of 924, the Welsh and the people of Chester flew a flag of rebellion. And they flew it for a cause that never makes it into the records. We don't know why they rebelled. But if they have been counting on Edward being too weak, too old, or too conflicted to fight back, they were wrong. King Edward's reign began in rebellion and war. Rebellion and war were almost the only thing he knew. And by taking the battlements, the people of Chester and King Edwall of Gwyneth were playing Edward's song. So Edward called the Ferd, and he marched. Now, Edward was an experienced military commander, and he held dominion over far more soldiers than Chester and Gwyneth could muster. We don't know how long the fighting lasted. We don't know what tactics were employed or how difficult it was. William of Malmesbury doesn't tell us, and the Chronicle straight up pretends it didn't happen. But we are told that Edward and the army of Wessex was victorious, and he installed a garrison in Chester to maintain his hold on the city. And then... Edward retreated to his nearby estate at Farndon-on-Dee. And on July 17, 924, just a few days after his victory, King Edward the Elder died. Now, William says Edward succumbed to sickness, but the proximity and the timing of his death has led some scholars to argue that Edward died of wounds that he suffered in the battle for Chester. It's something we might never know for certain. But Edward the Elder's passing is a major event in British history. Whatever his personal failings were, and based upon the record, it seems like he had some pretty big ones, Edward came incredibly close to forming England, and he managed to form a pan-British hegemony, at least for a split second. 
And it seems like the same thing that we keep getting hints of. The same thing that caused him problems since his earliest experiences on campaign against the Appledore Danes was that there was just something about him that rubbed people the wrong way. And it may have finally been the death of him. But kingdoms have to be run. And succession periods are a country's most vulnerable time. So Wessex needed a new king. And the crown prince was Edward's second-born son, Elfweird. But just days after Edward's death, on August 1st, 924, the crown prince of Wessex, Elfweird Atheling, died in Oxford. Now there's no mention that he was ill, nor is there any mention of Elfweird's cause of death. We're just told that this young man suddenly died in Oxford, within days of his father's death, presumably while he was preparing to take the throne. And so just like that, an awkward situation became deadly dangerous. Ilford had been signaled as the clear inheritor, and it was likely obvious to all in Wessex what was supposed to happen, including to Athelstan and whatever supporters he might have had. But now that the crown prince was dead, Wessex had a choice to make, and that choice was between Edward's firstborn son and his thirdborn son. Now, officially, the next in line to the throne was Edward's third son, Edwin. He was the second son of Edward and Lady Elfled. Because while Edwin was third, he was also from the right family, and he didn't have any rumors circulating about his mum like Athelstan did. And as a bonus, he was raised in Wessex. So for many powerful nobles in Wessex, Edwin ascending the throne would have been the obvious choice. So Athelstan the firstborn son of King Edward was passed up for the throne twice. And it wasn't because everyone forgot about him. People knew he was out there. This was deliberate. And in particular, one powerful noble named Alfred was determined to keep Athelstan off the throne of Wessex. According to William, this Alfred had organized a cabal against Athelstan. And that cabal started a campaign against Athelstan, and we think it was so successful that it might have been the origin of many of the strange rumors about Athelstan's mother, and thus his illegitimacy. But rumors that Athelstan was a bastard were just the beginning. While Athelstan was visiting Winchester after Edward's death, quite possibly for the funeral, members of the cabal ambushed him and attempted to blind the prince. Now Athelstan escaped the attack, but it was something he never forgot, nor did he ever forgive those who took part in it. He would continue searching for the conspirators for years. But this was the scale of the succession crisis in Wessex, and it persisted this way for over a year. And then Mercia did something incredible. They decided that they didn't need to wait for Wessex to pick a monarch. They just came forward and declared Athelstan king. And then they looked over their southern border and presumably said, your move, sticks. And following that event, in September of 925 at Kingston-upon-Thames, Athelstan was crowned as the King of Wessex. And so now, a man who had been sent away as a young boy by his king father, a man who had been rumored to be the illegitimate child of a concubine, was the King of Wessex. And it's possible that this was Athelstan's plan all along. But to pick that apart, let's go back to that rebellion at Chester. What's interesting about that rebellion in particular is that we don't actually know why they threw down the gauntlet. 
While Wales and Chester had plenty of reasons to want to rebel, no one's sure what started this conflict or why it was being fought. Was it loyalty to Athelflaed? To Elfwyn? Was it animosity towards Wessex and a general dislike of Edward? No one can say for certain. But consider this. There is no assertion that there was a Welsh invasion of Chester or an attempted annexation or anything like that. What we're told about is a rebellion that was launched out of Chester and it was supported by Wales. And then Edward responded to it. And that all suggests that they were rebelling specifically against Edward. And considering that he was king, that raises the question, who were they planning on replacing him with if they won? I mean, mercy and options were slim. Even decades earlier, Athelred, Lord of Mercia, rose up to lead the region, and he was from an unknown line. The dynasties of Mercia, if they still existed, were in tatters. And even the brand new dynasty led up by Athelred was in trouble, because the sole descendant of that line was Elfwyn, and she'd been captured and taken into Wessex. And Elfwyn never appears in the record again, not even in the Mercian Register. We don't even know if she was still alive. And because of that, it's unlikely that this rebellion was an effort to restore Elfwyn. However, there was another noble who was raised in the Mercian court. And we're told that he had already proved himself to the Mercians, and that, quote, he gave proof by many actions what just expectations of noble qualities might be entertained of him, end quote. And this noble was even good looking, being a slender man of average height and flaxen hair. But this is the most important part. He was a man who was part of a powerful family and from a famous dynasty with claims to both the thrones of Mercia and Wessex. He was Athelstan. More than anyone else, Athelstan had the best shot at uniting Mercia. And considering that he was the eldest son of Edward, but he was also of questioned legitimacy, he also had a really good shot at dividing the political camps of Wessex. After all, reasonable people could disagree whether or not he should succeed to the throne. Athelstan was the natural choice for a rebel king. He'd been thoroughly disinherited, and his father, the king, had thrown his life into chaos again and again. And all of this raises the possibility that Athelstan was directly involved in this rebellion. And that possibility is bolstered by how the chronicle goes dark in the lead-up to the fight. As far as the scribes were concerned, nothing happened in 922 or 923. Furthermore, the Chronicle has nothing to say about the rebellion in 924. It completely omits it. Now, do you remember the entry of 917, the one that went on for literal pages, breaking down Edward's campaign so thoroughly that it even talked about where they camped? Well, the entry for 924 is 14 words long. And not one of those words mentions this fight. They simply record Edward's death and then say that Athelstan succeeded to the throne. As if, you know, it all happened quickly and without controversy. It doesn't talk about how Athelstan was nearly blinded. It doesn't talk about the rebellion in Chester. It doesn't even talk about Elfward's death. Nothing. And if it wasn't for William of Malmesbury, we might not even know that it happened. And I don't think that's a mistake. Because I don't think this is a story about the heroism of the House of Wessex. I mean, consider the death of Edward's heir, Alfweird Atheling, who very well might have been preparing to become Alfweird Rex when he died. Well, he died in a very odd place. 
Oxford. This was a region that was Mercian before Edward annexed it in 911, probably taking advantage of the fact that his sister was in a weakened position following the death of her husband. Basically, it was part of a shady land grab. And then here we are, 13 years later, and Edward's son and successor just happened to die in those same lands that had been recently stolen from Mercia. And all of that went down just days after Edward died while subduing a Mercian rebellion. And meanwhile, the Chronicle pretends that it never happened. Reading these records, you get a sense that there are bodies in the basement. And to be fair, who knows, right? I mean, maybe Elfweird accidentally brutally stabbed himself 26 times in the neck while shaving. Or maybe he tragically repeatedly bashed his own head into the wall while taking a walk. It could be completely innocent. But there's one other part of the story that you don't know yet that makes me think that it probably wasn't. Athelstan would go on to prove that he's a hard ruler and quite capable of killing family members. And later on, he's definitely going to have one of his half-brothers killed. And so it's not like having Elfweird murdered would be entirely out of character for him. But however Elfweird met his end, Athelstan's biggest obstacle to rule had been cleared upon his death. But then he had to face off with the powerful members of the West Saxon nobility who already had an idea of who they wanted on the throne. Elfweird's younger brother, Edwin. And considering that many scholars suspect that Elfweard and Edwin were descendants of King Athelred of Wessex, King Alfred's older brother, well, it's understandable why the West Saxon nobility might have wanted that line to continue. And so here we are with two children of Edward standing against each other, both wanting to claim the throne. And while the official line seems to have been working really hard to erase the chaos of this period... It's pretty obvious that the question of who should rule over Wessex was something that people felt really strongly about. I mean, they tried to blind Athelstan while he was at the capital. And meanwhile, other members of the royal family kept dying rather mysteriously. That doesn't happen if you have a nice, easy transition of power. But as intense all of that is, the thing that I find most interesting here is how Mercia responded to it. There was, as far as we can tell, no diplomacy, no lobbying. They didn't make any moves that you might expect from a subkingdom pledged to their overlords in Wessex. Instead, Mercia did something completely unprecedented. They simply declared Athelstan king. And then they let Wessex decide if they wanted Edwin bad enough to face a civil war and the fracturing of the kingdom. Mercia, man. We're centuries from the days of Penda, and they still know how to throw a punch. But that's how Athelstan, the firstborn son of Edward, who'd spent much of his life in exile as a discarded, unwanted child and the subject of vicious rumors, became the most powerful king in all of Britain at the age of 30. And looking at all of this, I'm left wondering, did we just see Athelstan and his Mercian allies enact a coup? Don't if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.